0: Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. My name is Darren, and I'm the pastor. We are in a series called "The Way." We are going through the Book of Luke, and uh, we are looking at major themes of this gospel. Because Luke writes uh, as a narrative, he writes us a narrative to. Not just tell us what happened to Jesus, but really to help us know what it means to follow Jesus. So the last couple of weeks, I've been back from having um, been gone for about a month. And uh, I I spoke on the the healing ministry of Jesus. One of the major themes of Luke's gospel is the the ministry of healing. That Jesus came and not just taught this message of the kingdom of God, but he demonstrated it. And 20% of the story of Luke, the gospel of Luke... Has to do do with um, Jesus or his disciples healing and and seeing power encounters of uh, of Jesus liberating individuals, bringing sight to the blind, um, healing cripples, and those that um, were were cursed and all sorts of things. Um, And and the 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 interesting part of that is it's not just Jesus's ministry, but we actually are invited into that ministry. That as followers of Jesus, we um, are called into the continuation of jesus's ministry and last week i talked about what it means to be a disciple disciples aren't people who know a lot about jesus Um, they are individuals who have reoriented their entire lives around their relationship to jesus christ that jesus should reframe our life itself but for most of us uh we don't sing uh in my heart will sing uh how I love you like we don't sing what, what are the lyrics I had to write them down uh, with, with some of the things I have my heart will sing how I love you um, that's what most of us sing right it's not with everything I have I mean can we just be really honest for a moment just be really honest with everything I have my heart will sing how I love you how many of you were, sung that this morning I sung it how many of you know what that means Do you know how costly that is? And that's what discipleship is really about. It's the recognition that Jesus, the the stories that are told in the Gospel of Luke, the first response to the first disciples is that they leave everything behind and they follow Jesus. And this isn't some subtle way of saying, well, they just, you know, started showing up to church and talking about him at coffee shops and buying the, you know, the non-explicit language version of your favorite album or whatever it is that you define as spiritual. But it's actually they had to reorient their very existence that following Jesus impacts whether or not we watch Netflix or Hulu sometimes. That was my confession last week. as I, I claimed last week that, uh, in fact, Hulu Plus and Netflix um, distracts my discipleship. Anyone else struggle with that? I'm just being really naked right now. Vulnerable. Not naked. Vulnerable. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, where are we this morning? We're in the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to step out of the sermon for a second. Let us not sing songs that we don't really mean. There's a lot of... uh, There are a few places in the scripture where where, uh, people of God will talk against that. Let us not become hypocrites. Let us not on Sunday say we will worship with everything. When really we just mean some of the stuff in our lives. Does anyone else struggle with that here? Can we just? Can I pray for us for that? I know this isn't part of the sermon, but can we just pray that in fact we will be true to what we sing on Sundays? Because I was, I was hit. I was convicted. I was convicted. No, I don't sing. I don't give you everything. I don't give you my fears of whether or not my son's going to be healthy. I don't give you my fears of whether or not I'm going to get out of this, this place of despair. I don't, give, I don't bring all of my finances when stuff gets hard. I talked about that last week. When, when, when medical bills come up, when things come at me, the first thing I want to give up is my tithe. And apparently I'm the only one that struggles with that. That it's easier to just give him some of the stuff. It's easier to just add him to my life. Like an accessory. Like, oh, I'm going to go to a nice place today. I've got to put on my watch, my Jesus watch or whatever it is. Rather than saying, all right, God, this is what your scripture teaches. What if I actually did what it says? What if I actually trusted you with my life? What if I actually said, you know what, to, to gain life is to actually give it up. That the way the way to actually live is to surrender and die to myself. What if I, I tried to do that? Well, I actually can't even try Would you teach me, Jesus? I just surrender even trying. Can, you, can we just do that? I'm going to pray. If you, if you want prayer for that, raise your hand. I'm going to pray for all of us. Okay, there's a lot of us. Jesus, um, we don't come here because it's some religious duty. We don't come here because it makes us nicer or because we think that by doing this, it. Makes you love us more, although some of us feel that way. Like some spiritual checklist that helps us go on living a happier life, like it's a release valve or something. This isn't some mechanic shop where we go to get tuned up so that we can go on living. This is a place that we're reminded that you are God, you are King. You are Lord of all creation, and you have every right to every part of our existence. So we repent. We repent of our selfishness, of our pride, of our insecurity, of our fear, of our doubts that lead us away, of all the things that we bring in our anger, our lust, our pride, all of that stuff. We just repent and we just say, Thank you that you forgive us, that you nailed that to the cross. Thank you, Lord. Help us be gracious to ourselves the way you are gracious to us. In your name. Amen. Thank you for that. That was um, probably just for me, but I'm glad some of us got to enjoy public confession. Luke chapter 5. A new theme of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to verse 27. Um, one of the themes that Luke, more than any other Gospel, really brings up is the theme of the marginalized. The least The last, the lost, the broken, the downtrodden, the hurting, the poor. It seems like Luke emphasizes these particular characters in his gospel. When we talk about it, we're we're also talking about women, because in the first century context, they were of a different social class than men. We're talking about children, and and we're going to see this morning what happens when uh, Jesus confronts, These types of people. And so uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for uh, for Jesus at his house in a large crowd of tax collectors and others. We're eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's a quick story. Verse 21 through 32. Levi, or the gospel writer of Matthew, who's a tax collector is invited to follow Jesus. Now, in the first century, tax collectors were, um, were not really liked by anyone else. And um, tax collectors, there were two types of tax collectors. There were those that had um, practiced income tax collecting and those that were poll tax collectors. The poll tax were custom officials. They're the ones that sat in booths um, at state bridges or um, uh, roads that they had to sit in the booth and collect a, a tax for if you wanted to cross the bridge. And of the two variations of tax collectors, the customs officials were more despised than the other. Um, tax collecting, the moment a Jew entered into the service of being a tax collector, he was considered an outcast of Jewish society. He was despised by the rest of Israel. He was denied basic civil rights. He could no longer be a witness in the Jewish court, and he couldn't be a judge in the Jewish court. Um, he was excommunicated from the temple worship. He was no longer considered uh, a son of Abraham. He was no longer considered to be an Israelite, really. Some authors, right? Um, his family would have been disgraced. He would have been hated and despised by his fellow, Jewish, uh, his fellow Jews. And uh, he would have been seen as a conspirator. Some rabbis write this, and I think it's up here, um, that tax collectors are in the same class as murderers and thieves. So that gives you a little bit of first century background. And so what we're talking about when we talk about tax collectors in the first century are the morally corrupt. We're talking about the worst kinds of people. Thieves and murderers equals tax collectors. And Jesus says to a tax collector who's sitting in his booth, I believe you can know what I know, you can do what I do, and you have the capacity to be like me. And he drops everything. And he responds the only way he knew how to respond. And what's that? He throws a party, maybe a rager, who knows? He throws a party. And what's fascinating is that Luke records it that he just invites his friends to this great banquet. And his friends are a bunch of other tax collectors, a bunch of other morally corrupted people, a bunch of others. And I don't know what your Bible says, but the word other um, is, is, is also a sinner, it's a, it's a technical phrase that Luke uses, and um, it doesn't mean someone who's breaking some moral law, but it's a technical word for a social class. The others, or the sinners, in this particular context, are for the people that weren't practicing the oral traditions. They weren't practicing laws of cleanliness. They weren't... Um, participating in regular forms of Jewish festivals and worship. So they were a social class. And, and it's fascinating because Jesus is there partying, drinking, and eating with them. And then we're introduced, or we've already been introduced to them, but to the, the Pharisees. And uh, so I'm just going to give you some background as we move into this. Because you have, you have tax collectors and sinners. You have these, this social class that Jesus is eating and dining with. And then you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, uh, we've, we know about the Pharisees, right? Because it seems like they're, the, they're kind of the bad guys. You know, Jesus is always confronting them. Um, we, we read about it in the Gospels. as These guys were kind of opposed to Jesus' ministry, and rightly so. But um, during the time of Jesus, the Pharisees were very popular. They were loved by the common person. The the word Pharisee means set apart ones or separated ones. And what happened, the Pharisees came about during the time of exile. And what the Pharisees did is absolutely amazing. During the exile, they said, hey, we're going to apply all the traditions and laws and uh, purity laws that are strictly for temple living and temple worship and the Levites, those that are part of the priestly class, we're going to apply it to the common folk. And, and, and if we do that, then God's going to come and bring his, his, uh, the new age, the age to come. That's their, their concept. Their view was, we're going, to, we're going to live out the purity laws. We're going to live out the Torah. We're going to live everything out so that God would come and bring justice. So the Pharisees, they were good people. And, and what they decided is they began to live out of um, a strict adhered, adherence to the law. They were unlike the Sadducees, which was another religious sect. These are some big words. You're all learning. Good. The Sadducees uh, were part of the aristocratic ruling class. They were monarchists. They, they were wealthy. They were rich. They, they were separated from all the rest of Israel. Remember, 90% of, of uh, Jewish Palestine in the first century were uh, living in poverty. So you have this disparity here. And so the, they didn't like the Sadducees, but they loved the Pharisees. And the Pharisees followed the purity laws of the temple in everyday life. And they devoted themselves to rigorously following the laws and the oral traditions. Holiness was, uh, was all about separation. It was all about uh, separating yourselves from anything that was unclean. And so they followed the law. And there were 613 uh, written laws that we find in the Torah and the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they followed the law um, to the detail, to the, the letter of the law. And they also followed the Mishnah. The Mishnah, it was the oral tradition, and it, it was referred to as the fence around the law. And so they added 1,500 other laws and traditions and customs on top of the 613 laws. Does that seem like a lot? So over 2,000 different laws they had to live by. This is what the Pharisees did. And so, um, and I just to point this out, 25% of the laws had to do with cleanliness, had to do with What you didn't touch and what you did touch. Who you ate with and who you didn't eat with. Are you with me? Um, And the three areas that they focused on was public piety, table, fellowship, and Sabbath laws. So being religious outwardly, who you ate and didn't eat with, and how you ate and what you ate, and the way you followed the Sabbath laws. If you've read the Gospels, have you noticed that Jesus confronts those specifically? about the Gospels. you with me? Okay. So I want to talk about this. They, the Pharisees, created a religious way of life. We're talking about the way. Last week I talked about the way the world disciples us. That we don't live in neutral space. We live in contested space. That the world is wanting to bend us to become a particular way. Do you remember this? And I believe that there is a way of religion That has a similar bent. And what I mean by that is they defined their capacity for connection with God and holiness by what they were capable of doing or not doing. I want you to stay with me for a second. So they they defined their holiness by what they were capable of accomplishing or doing themselves. Religion often is some type of spiritual ladder where we have to climb to get closer to God or if we can just memorize certain things then we'll be more liked by this god or if we can follow these these simple rules this path we'll, we'll enter into nirvana or, or or whatever it is there are all sorts of religions out there and, and christianity uh you know we are a religion but it can, it seems like we can create these rules and these uh systems and this this tradition these traditions that that make us feel like we're closer to god by doing these things are you with me Okay, so we have the Pharisees. And one of their sayings that I found, the early writers uh, in the first century wrote, this is a common phrase. It said, uh, a Pharisee would never recline at the table with people of the land. This is a, from uh, Josephus. Pharisees or would never recline at the table with people of the land. And people of the land is a Hebrew way of describing others and sinners. Okay, that social class of outcasts. Are you with me? So, Jesus is doing that very thing. He is reclining at the table, dining with tax collectors. And the way of religion, the way of holiness is set up to say, you don't do that if you're religious at all. You don't do that if you're holy. So the Pharisees are confused. Are you with me? And they're confused because of what the table represents. The table represents so much more than just having a meal with some stranger. Are you with me? We're going, to, we're going to come back to that. But I want to give you another encounter. Of what happens when Jesus confronts a sinner. Let's look at Luke chapter 7. Verse 36. This is one of my favorite passages. It was the second sermon I ever preached. In my life. In Bill Doctrum's class. <laughs> the other teaching pastor. He gave me a B. (laughs) (laughs) I got a lot of A's in his classes. I had a ton of Bill classes. I had like eight in my my college career. Um, And there was one time he sat me down, and I was taking 27 units my last semester. In one semester, 27 units to graduate on time. Because... The school messed up. They had a glitch in the system. And I found out right before I needed to graduate. So I took a few extra bill classes. And he finally asked me, as I was stressed out of my mind. He says to me, Darren, when is good enough going to be good enough? He was telling me that for grades. And so I was thinking, he's going to give me A's for whatever I give. And he did not give me A's. So we're going to talk about forgiveness today. Uh, Verse 36. One of the Pharisees. Listen to this story. And I want you to just... Try, uh, uh, try to get into the story. So some of you don't read it. Just listen. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have, have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, a day's wage, 500 days wages, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards this woman and said to Simon, The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house to have dinner with him. And um, he's reclined at the table. Now, in the first century, a Pharisee or someone with wealth would would throw a banquet or any type of dinner. And most of the time, they would eat in a courtyard or outside because this is what it seems like. And so what what we know is that they would eat in a courtyard. And those people of the land, the poor, those that were invited, were able to come into the courtyard and stand around the table. They were never allowed to, to talk or to engage, or touch, or act in the, the dialogue that would be going around. The, the hope of participating is to get scraps of food, or just get some type of spiritual wisdom that, uh, by listening into the conversation. So that's what we have going on. And the character of the woman, she apparently is from that town. And it says that she lived a sinful life. And that's polite. She was a prostitute. And, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew that she was a prostitute because you saw her on the street. You saw her with those men. You knew who she was and what she represents. And so she comes, but before she goes to the table or to the party, she goes home and she brings an alabaster jar of perfume. She doesn't just run to see him. Apparently, what scholars believe is she's been confronted by Jesus before this event. She's had some type of encounter because what her response is, is to go back home and grab the most valuable thing she has in her entire life. You see, an alabaster jar of perfume represents maybe a dowry that she had when she went into a marriage. It rep- represents an, a very expensive uh, item in her life, probably the most expensive thing she has, the most valuable thing she has in her entire life. And she probably brought it into the marriage. That's what you do. It would be something of maybe a year's worth of annual income or even more than that, scholars say. And she brings this into the marriage. And if something happened, let's say she had an affair or her husband dies, she brings the dowry, the alabaster jar, out of the marriage. And you need to understand that this is the only thing keeping her safe when prostitution is no longer available to her. This is her pension her 401k. This is the thing that will pay the bills when her body's old and decrepit and she has nothing else to give. She runs home and brings that to the party. And she makes her way through the crowd. And she's standing close enough to Jesus and she's already encountered him. And we can only imagine the type of emotion that she has because she doesn't just cry, she's weeping. And that's not really a quiet thing, is it? As he reclines low to the ground with his feet behind him, she stands over him, weeping. And probably when she realizes what's going on, she can see that she's getting his feet wet. And then she does the unspeakable. She unties her hair, falls to her feet, and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her Untying her hair in public in the first century is the same as a woman taking off her top today. It was that inappropriate, that sexual, that controversial, that scandalous. A sinful prostitute woman comes to this holy guy. They don't know who he is. This holy man falls to her feet. As she weeps, she takes down her hair and begins to wash Jesus' feet. And while she's down there, she does the unthinkable. She, She takes out her 401k. She takes out everything she has and pours it on His feet. In one act of absolute scandalous worship. It's the only thing appropriate to do for her. And then there's the Pharisee. This is happening. Well, the question is, surely this guy's not a prophet. Because he would know better. If he was a prophet, he would know you don't get touched by a sinful woman. You wouldn't let this happen. Nobody would. If they're a rabbi, if they're a holy person, if they're a Pharisee, if they're a prophet, if they're the Messiah, the Son of God, you would never in a million years let someone like that touch someone like you. Because you would be contaminated. You would be seen as unholy, unclean. Clearly, we find out Simon, the Pharisees, reason for the visit, the reason for the invitation to recognize, to see whether or not this really is a man of God. And in his respect to the way of religion, he is not because it doesn't fit his customs and traditions. Jesus tells a parable. Hey, two people owe money. One's a lot larger than the others. And his question is, who will love him more? That's not really a question you add, but that's the question he asks because he wants to demonstrate what's happening here. And the Pharisee answers correctly and is trapped by Jesus because Jesus is the smartest man who have ever lived. And the part in the story that really rips my heart is after he answers this. And I could just see it because... This this whole thing's going down. I mean, just you just have to people are freaking out. What is going on? Who is this guy, Jesus? What is happening? And and Jesus is talking with the Pharisee and and he turns to the woman. So he he wasn't looking at her at this point. But he finally turns to her. And he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? Of course. sees this woman we know who she is she's a sinner she's a prostitute you can hear her weeping you saw her hair come down you can smell her with that perfume everyone's seen this sinful person nobody saw her except Jesus Jesus looked through what everyone else saw and saw not an act of sexuality or scandal but saw an act of worship saw her For who she was. And she too is a daughter of the king. That something has happened with her, and she was once living this way, and now she's living this way. Based on what? How much she loved. Based on how much she gave back to the generous gift of forgiveness. She had already been forgiven. His response is. Her many sins, yes, she was a prostitute, have been forgiven. Past tense. He's claiming what's already taken place. Her many sins have been forgiven. In the way of religion, this is not fair. This is not right. This is not okay. You have to earn holiness. You have to live by a strict moral code. You have to climb that spiritual ladder, give that tithe over and over again. You have to do more and more and more for the system. You have to do more and more for the establishment in order to get your way. But Jesus just declares it to the worst kinds of people. You've been forgiven. It is not fair to the religious establishment to preach this message. But that's what Jesus does. One author says this. I wanted to quote him because it's significant. The absolutely unpardonable thing was not his concern for the sick, the cripples, the lepers, the possessed. Not the way he put up with women and children around him. Not even his partisanship for the poor humble people. The real trouble was that he got involved with the moral failures. With obviously irreligious and immoral people. People morally and politically suspect. So many dubious, obscure, abandoned, hopeless types existing as an eradicable evil of the fringe of every society. That was the real scandal of Jesus. Verse 50 says, Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in the word wholeness, shalom. Go in right relationship with God. But the question before is offered by the guest is, Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? Go back to chapter 5. We read the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, verse 30, who belong to their sect, complained to his disciples Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners, but sinners to repentance. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Guys, the table in the first century was it an announcement. It was a statement, a symbol, a sacred act. It was a proclamation between friends. The table meant full embrace. It meant friendship. It meant peace between two parties in the first century. It meant fellowship. Having a meal with someone was a significant deal. Today, an Orthodox Jew will not have a meal at his house with just anyone because of the implications of what that means. Jesus is, in fact, declaring that He is accepting those sinners. So the question is, who is this who even forgives, who can forgive sins? Or, or why does he, 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 he eat and drink with tax collectors? The, that question, it can mean only two things to the Pharisees in the story. Number one, Jesus is not who he says he is. Jesus is not some holy man. He's not a prophet. He's not a rabbi. Because he's, he's clearly hanging out with sinners. And that implication means that he too is a sinner. So his message isn't true. And, and what he's doing uh, kind of... Counts them out as far as it goes to not being the Messiah in their eyes. Or it can mean the other thing. That actually he is the Messiah. That actually he is the prophet of God. That He is the Son of God. And the very act of dining with tax collectors and symbols is exactly what it seems. He is extending forgiveness. He is extending full embrace. He is accepting them as they are, not as they should be. He has come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's exactly what He does. This is good news. That he actually touches the untouchable. He forgives sins. He accepts the unacceptable. He includes the least kinds of people into the table fellowship, saying, you too are welcome for me. That Savior of the world is dining with you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, no matter how bad you think it really is, Jesus comes and sits at the table and says, pass the salt. which we don't get it. He's basically saying, I accept it. It's come at a great cost. It's cost him everything. The worst way to die, he did it so that he could sit at a table with you and you can just come in freely. It's called grace. Nothing is more scandalous than grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do more for it. You don't have to work your way up it. You don't have to get yourself clean to meet with Him. When you come to Jesus, He just embraces you as you are. This this is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus we want to pattern our lives after. And if you've been in church for a while and you've heard another story or another gospel, this is the gospel. That He accepts you as you are and not as you should be. But that's come at a price. And all you have to do is receive it. What do we do then? We've talked about healing. We've talked about discipleship. And now we're talking about the least and the last. Well, I think for some of us, our response is repentance from our Pharisaic ways. We have to embrace the adventure and dine with prostitutes of the world. And dance with drug lords of our societies. And sit with sinners and tax collectors of our culture. As simply as an announcement. That they're invited. I think we've celebrated our invitations for far too long. We've sat down at the table of fellowship. And we've had seconds and thirds. And we forgot the most important part of our inclusion. That we have to invite others. We have become comfortable. Churches are so cozy and comfortable they don't have the morally corrupt in them anymore, although most of them are leading churches. Some of them. It's so sad, but true. We've dined with the Savior and we've forgotten how to respond. We have forgotten this Jesus. What would it look like if the garden looked more like Jesus? That's what I've been wondering. I, I think here's here's something I want to... I proclaim if there's a party a gardener should be at it if there's a party happening in our city we should be there if there's somebody grieving we should be there if there's somebody suffering we should be there but if there's a party going on we should be there too I want to call our church to evangelism it's one of the lost things of our postmodern generation or post-Christian generation that millennials I believe are horrible at evangelism we don't want to offend anyone it's been so fascinating we're so we're so caught up in what everyone else thinks that we just won't ever say what's actually true and when I say evangelism I don't mean grab a soapbox and stand by the pier I mean call your friends that don't know Jesus and sit down and prepare a meal and share with them your story and your truth and don't don't hide around the prayer pray pray Invite them into your life. That's how the next generation of church will explode. Not because we get clever at programs or I stand up here and get funnier every week or take my shirt off for a video. Some of you saw that. I was like, why was that in there? Horrible. We're never playing it again. Jeremy Parsons. I want to call you to the dinner table. The only response is to go after those that you would never include. Jesus says, hey, when you throw a banquet, invite the cripples, the blind, the lame, those that will never invite you back. Those that actually don't have a house or a room to actually welcome you in. Invite them into your home. What if we did that? What if you did that? What if your response today is to look around the room and recognize that most of you here can invite somebody else back and recognize it's the people on the fringe, the people that will never show up here that you need to include. Maybe that's for me. But then the last response is this, and I'll close and I'll invite the team up. Um, Our only response to these stories is to respond by giving everything back. It's to do what the woman did. It's to, um, it's to take everything we have in our lives and to put it at Jesus' feet. Do you know what that's called? Worship. For some of us, our job is the greatest thing in our life. We get our identity. We get our value, our purpose, our we have meaning. From going to work 9 to 7, maybe 9 to 5, whatever it is for most of us. For some of you, you needed to put that at Jesus' feet. For some of us, it's our families. Literally, our kids and our spouses have become the idols of our life. And you have forgotten that you are first loved by Jesus. And you're a son or a daughter of the King. There are all sorts of things that we need to let go of. Some of us, it is money, it's our careers, it's our dreams, it's our need for success, our need for being special, whatever it is. Um, Our response as a body is to worship. And I'm not going to... I just want to challenge us in our worship. We can do a much better job. Not for the sake of earning anything, not for the sake of more, not for the sake of getting any closer, but for For the simple response that Jesus tells the Pharisees, which one will love more? So my question for you this morning, I'll just leave it at this, is how do you love him? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.